Welcome to Whole Brain Teaching, the podcast. Join your host, Rhonda Arl and Laura Forehand. We want to help you as teachers reach your full potential by keeping you up to date with all the latest and best Whole Brain Teaching strategies. Whole Brain Teaching is a grassroots educational reform movement founded by Coach Chris Biffle, Jay Vanderfin, and Chris Rexstad. Whole Brain Teaching's goal is to create peaceful classrooms through orderly fun. To support the podcast, please like and share with other teachers. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. And now, here are Laura and Rhonda. Hi, welcome to Whole Brain Teaching, the podcast. I'm Laura Forehand, and I am one of your co-hosts here today. I'm here with Rhonda, and just to give you a little bit of background about me, I'm a second grade teacher in Northwest Missouri. I'm also an executive board member with Whole Brain Teaching and help with certification. So um, Rhonda, it's great to see your face today, as always. So can you introduce yourself, please? Yes, I will. And thank you so much, Laura. I'm um, Rhonda Arlt, and I'm a retired second grade teacher from Goddard, Kansas. Um, I'm an executive board member as well and help out with our certification. How's retired life going? It feels like <laughs> summer vacation right now. So ask me come August. Okay. You'll probably be like, it still feels like summer vacation to me. I did have to go buy a few school supplies just for myself. Oh. <laughs> Just the teacher never leaves us, right? Right. Uh, but to get to today's topic, we are so excited to have uh, Andre Desotel here again with us. If you have not listened to any of our previous podcasts um, with Andre, we really want to encourage you to go back and listen to them because Andre talks to us about the No Fear Classroom and just so many wonderful things that we can take into this brand new school year. I know that was one of my very favorite podcasts. So Andre's an executive board member with Whole Brain Teaching, and we are just so privileged to have him here today. Welcome, Andre. We're so glad that you're back with us. Thank you so much, Laura and Rhonda. It's a pleasure to be back on the podcast, and I'm really excited to talk about today's topic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We cannot wait either. It's just going to be amazing. (laughs) All right. Well, let's jump right into this. Um, We're talking about Strong Five today. And can you kind of give us the purpose or reasoning behind why we need Strong Five in our classroom? Thank you, Rhonda. Um, So to start, Strong Five was born from the understanding that when a kid is in crisis, not only is that kid in crisis going through this intense emotional storm, but that crisis is impacting every single person in the room with the crisis. Mm -hmm. And that includes all the other students. It includes all the adults in that room. And Laura and Rhonda get this. It even includes the teacher, Mm -hmm. right? And we're Mm -hmm. talking about some of the hardest parts of this remarkable calling that we're in. Um, And that's de-escalating a kid in crisis. Now, in most cases, the crisis it has the potential to stop everything in its tracks, as we've probably witnessed before. Um, And it can sort of engulf the entire class. And it can certainly hijack the lesson. It can certainly hijack the learning taking place. But more importantly, how does this crisis impact everyone's internal experience 
in that room? Mm -hmm. What's happening to everyone's nervous system sitting there in the room next to that crisis? Mm -hmm. Now to bring this point home, no pun intended, let's say that Rhonda, you're at home, it's Friday night, and you're about to watch a suspenseful movie. You get your popcorn and your soda, you settle in on the couch, and not long into the movie, an intense scene comes on. What's going on inside of you in that moment? Well, perhaps you might notice that your muscles tighten, your heart rate increases, your eyes dilate, and your breath becomes shallow and short. And this is all happening while your nervous system is processing and reacting to that movie scene. Now, even though you're not technically in the scene with the actors, Rhonda, your brain and your body sure feel like it is, right? And in a strange way, you become connected to this scene, emotionally tethered to the crisis that's being acted out. So back in the classroom, we recognize that this could be a similar internal experience for students in our classroom. As everyone in the room on some level becomes a part of the crisis. So with that understanding, strong five is an approach that works to sort of contain the crisis in the classroom and metaphorically encapsulate this emotional explosion. Um, putting it in another way, um, it's how can we create a barrier between the crisis and the rest of the class? What would that look like? So that moves us into understanding about the upstairs and the downstairs brain. Um, I think it's really important that we, before we get into the, the procedures of Strong 5, that we really take a, a, a close look at what's happening in the brain of a kid in crisis. And a simple way to do that is to talk upstairs and downstairs brain. So if you imagine a lateral view of a brain, a side visual perspective of the brain, the higher centers next to the forehead would represent the upstairs brain and the lower centers down by that brain stem would represent the downstairs brain. Now, to start things off, let's focus in on the upstairs brain. When we're focused on the upstairs brain, we have access to a very specific set of skills. Um, and we call these our executive skills because this is where we have the ability to do reasoning impulse control, emotional regulation, logical thinking, reflection, planning, attention and focus, and so much more. Mm -hmm. This is what I like to call living our best lives, right? We can access our best self. Um, and I like to use the analogy of we're in the penthouse, right? What could go wrong in the penthouse? Laura, can you explain back briefly what we have access to when we're in our upstairs brain? Yeah. So with our upstairs brains, that's where we're going to have all our reasoning skills. We're able to like, when we're in that part of our brain, we can make decisions. We can, um, you know, just, it's just seems like we're clear, maybe level-headed in a way. Um, so I like how you, uh, use the term executive functioning, you know, we're able to just do those everyday things without really giving it much thought. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Now, if we contrast that with the downstairs brain, it's a whole different world in the downstairs brain. When we move from high to low brain centers, like I said, it's a very different world. Um, and we get in this world when things are not going as we want them to go. 
or if we feel threatened. And that threat can be a real threat or even a perceived threat. That's the kind of thing that will throw us from our upstairs to our downstairs brain. So what is our skill set? When the world is not going my way, when I feel threatened, these are the skills I have access to. Blaming, crying, name calling, begging, whining. And if we descend even lower into the brain, the basement, this is where I attack, I run, I hide because my only job right now is survival at all costs. And you better watch out, right? Here I am reactive. I am impulsive as I am trying to secure my safety. That is my number one goal. So how would you summarize the downstairs brain, Rhonda? Well, the downstairs brain is where we're not either getting our way or we're feeling threatened. And that's where we have that blaming, that crying, that begging, um, those impulses just to be safe. And I would assume, too, that this is a place where a child might self-harm themselves. We've talked about depending over desk, doing things like that. You got it. Um, yeah, it, it can be a very scary place for sure. And when we talk about responding to a kid in crisis, um, it takes a very special skill set for that teacher. Um, and we'll get into the details of that soon. Um, but I think it's, it's really important to understand the intentionality that has to be present when a teacher is moving to a kid who is in their downstairs brain. Um, and so our role is to support them in climbing up their staircase. And I, I like to think that my job in responding to a kid in crisis is to help them climb up their staircase one step at a time mm -hmm. until we get into that upstairs brain. And once we're there, then we can use the skill of reflection and think back of, well, what was that trigger? Well, how did I re react to that trigger? Um, what are some new skills that you could teach me for the next time I'm in that similar circumstance? Um, so the teacher role when a kid is in crisis is absolutely crucial. And I know we'll get into depth with that soon. Yeah. So this kind of leads us into the discussion of strong five. So how does strong five work then? So now that we know kind of the anatomy of the brain and th that to me was so good. And I love the word that you used. Um, teachers need to be intentional because I know for a fact that there were many times where my emotional level was matching my students emotional level and not for the better. So I love that. But so now how do we bring this concept of strong five into what you've told us about the upstairs brain and the downstairs brain. Absolutely. And just to piggyback on what you just said, um, the teacher's brain state, wherever that teacher is in their staircase will dictate the brain state of the kid they're interacting with. And we know this is true because if I yawn, you yawn. If I yell, you yell. Yes. But if I calm, you have a shot of calming as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really important. Now that leads us into the procedures of strong five. Now we like to say that this is um, a strong five drill. Here's why. Just as we practice procedures, procedures for other natural disasters, like fires, hurricanes, earthquakes, before an actual natural disaster hits, we have some idea how to respond to it, mm -hmm. to keep us all safe. 
So in the same manner, we're going to create a drill that's going to help everyone respond appropriately when a kid might become in crisis in your classroom. So there's a list of procedures. And the first one is you're going to want to make sure that your students know the classroom rules. They're going to be a really integral part in the strong five procedure, because whenever you are responding to the kid in crisis, the rest of the class, they're going to be engaged in a rule rehearsal, but it's kind of, it's kind of different than the, the traditional rule rehearsal. And this is how it's different. The kids will say rule one, which is follow directions quickly, Mm -hmm. but instead of moving to rule two, they're going to say rule five, make our dear team stronger and really emphasize that rule. Then they move into rule two, raise your hand for permission to speak. And they follow that up with rule five, make our dear team stronger. So we're alternating um, our sequence of rules, but we're embedding rule five after every single rule just to really give that that rule lots of power. Um, so that's one of the first things we want to submit with our class that they know the rules and their gestures. Okay. So once that's done, the way we would run a strong five drill is you tell your students something like this. There's going to be moments in this classroom where I need to respond to one of you pretty quickly. And when you are in need and I'm responding to you quickly, I need all of you that I'm not responding to in that moment to be doing something productive. And that is the strong five drill. And so you would have maybe a practice routine right now. You would tell your kids that whenever I say strong five and I hold up my fist in the air and I point at a selected student, that student's going to stand up and they could even lead the strong five rule rehearsal Mm -hmm. where they're saying rule one and everybody gives them back, follow directions quickly. And they go rule five and the sequence continues. That gives me, the teacher, a chance to move over to the kid in crisis and have that one-on-one opportunity. Um, And we're going to get into the specifics of what is that teacher doing when they are in that one-on-one role with the kid in crisis, Mm -hmm. Um, which we'll touch on it briefly here, is when that teacher is there, they're going to be focused on identifying what that student might be experiencing in that moment and giving them options, Mm -hmm. choices. And then once the crisis is over, whether we're pretending or in real mode here, we want to make sure that that kid comes back inside their community of their classmates Mm -hmm. with some sort of gesture or phrase um, to remind them that they are still connected to Mm -hmm. this community. Um, And that could be a heart gesture with a a simple phrase like when together or you belong with our class or something Mm-hmm. along those lines. Um, so that's kind of the strong five drill procedures in a nutshell. Do you want to kind of sum those back to us, Rhonda? <laughs> okay. There's a lot. Yeah. Yes. So jump in if I forget a part. So sure. basically this is when a student has escalated, the teacher's going to say strong five, hold up their fist and point to like a student student leader or a student that can follow through. And what they're going to do is they're going to be productive so that the teacher can go deal with the situation, but they'll start with rule review and rule one, follow directions quickly. And then they um, go to rule five, just to embed that rule five after every rule in order for hopefully that power of rule five kind of to take over. So they'll say rule one, 
then rule five, rule two, then rule five. We just want those other kids to be productive. And I know it can be kind of a scary situation for them. So I really like how this kind of takes the focus off our little guy or little girl that's in crisis. And it helps those other kids kind of focus in, especially on something that they know that they're aware of. So this is a way to get it started. That's really good. Um, So what I'm hearing you say is that this is something that we should practice um, before kind of like, like you said, a fire drill or an earthquake drill. This is something that we should, we should introduce and practice to our students within those first few weeks of school when we're practicing all our other drills. Is that correct? Absolutely. So that if the time does come and you do need to respond to a kid in crisis, you want everyone else to know, hey, we've got this. We are prepared for what's about to come. Um, And so just like we treat those other disasters with a drill in preparation, we would do the same thing here with a kid that could be in an emotional crisis. I like that. I, I was wondering if you could touch a little bit on the, why the importance of rule five? Yeah. So we have to think about ensuring that every kid in that class feels connected. And the one rule that touches on that the best is rule five, make our dear team stronger. Everyone is a teammate working together as a team, as a community. And when someone is in crisis, that's a team member, right? Think of them as they're injured on the field. What does everyone on that soccer field do? Do they continue with the game? Mm-hmm. No, right? They, they come to that, that teammate's aid and they support any way they can. So this is our way of supporting that, that kid in need. We're reminding the entire class the kid in crisis, my teacher, myself, my the neighbor next to me, that we are a team right now. And we're focusing on making our dear team stronger in a moment that is truly a weakening experience to our team. Um, so that's kind of the rationale behind the, the hyper-focus on rule five. Embedding it. Yeah. All right. Well, you mentioned that strong five is what the students are doing during this crisis. So what is the teacher's role? Do you have any points, pointers for the teacher or suggestions that the teacher needs to do to help this, this escalate this child in crisis? Absolutely. Um, in a nutshell, bring water to the fire, not fuel. <laughs> and that can be so hard to do, right? And mm-hmm. are we going to oops sometime? Yeah, we're going to oops sometimes, right? And that's okay. I think the important thing, if we do find ourselves struggling through that crisis right alongside that kid is that we we always come back and we repair that connection with that kid right so let's imagine that there's a flow chart and the flow chart starts with a question um or actually it starts with a trigger it starts with the kid who's in crisis and they're demonstrating some really extreme behavior right there in class the next thing we're going to ask to do in that flow chart is to pause Just take a moment and pause. And that leads us to a question that we're going to ask ourselves. Do I have the capacity to manage this crisis with this kid right now? Sometimes the answer is going to be yes. Sometimes the answer, let's be real, is going to be no. So when the answer is no, we're going to do something called strategic retreat, which I believe I've referenced in a previous podcast, but we'll kind of review it right here together. Strategic retreat 
is a few lines that work really well to maintain your composure in a highly emotional moment. And so it would sound something like this. So there's a trigger in my class. I pause. Do I have the capacity? Oh, no, I don't. I cannot do this again. So then I go into strategic retreat mode and I go up to the kid in crisis and I say, I'm feeling upset. You deserve the best from me. We'll talk about this later. And that's all you do. Um, Now, if we unpack that, what are we doing there? When we say to that kid, I'm feeling upset, we're tagging our emotion, right? Which is important for them to hear that, you know, we have feelings too, even as the adult. The second thing I say is you deserve the best from me. I'm communicating respect to that kid in a highly possibly disrespectful moment. And then I end with, we will talk about this later, which says we're going to address this, but we're going to address this issue with our reasoning skills, our upstairs brain, not our emotions, not that downstairs brain. Um, So what we're doing there is we're modeling emotional regulation for that kid. And that's the best way for kids to learn emotional regulation is by seeing it demonstrated by the adults in their life. That's really good. So is that, go ahead, Rhonda. Okay. So that's addressing a no. What about if you're able to address it, where do we go from there? Right. And look, let's just go more in detail about if I do answer no. And let's say I don't even have the words for the strategic retreat. I am that heated right now. I'm not going to find the words. I feel myself getting upset. You deserve the best from me. It just might be you going there and taking deep breaths right alongside that kid until whomever you've called for backup support arrives at the scene, right? Mm -hmm. The point is that we're going in, maintaining our composure, and we're really focused on almost co-regulating with that kid and letting that kid see that I am I am maintaining my control right now, and this is how I'm showing it to you. I'm taking deep breaths. I'm here with you. I'm right beside you, but I'm taking in that deep breath and letting it out. Now, um, if we answer yes, so there's a trigger, we pause, and I ask myself, do I have the capacity? And I'm thinking, yes, I do. I had six and a half hours of quality sleep last night. My foamy latte is on point this morning, and I'm even wearing a new top. Of course, I can answer yes to this moment. When we answer yes, we have to be careful. There's a lot of enthusiasm around that yes, but it won't take much for us to go from patient to impatient, from calm to livid. So we have to do something. We have to be really mindful about maintaining that composure. And we do this with something called active calming. Um, And I'll get into what that means. So as I'm going into the crisis, I want to be intentional about actively calming myself because I know that I could switch from my upstairs brain to my downstairs brain like that. It'll only take one little thing that that kid says to me or one thing that flies near my face, right? So what does that active calming look like? The first thing is I like to reframe the behavior. In, in other words, I want to give myself a, a whole different set of goggles. I want to see this kid differently. And so for me, that looks like this. I choose to feel sad for a kid in crisis over mad at a kid in crisis because nine out of 10 times, the story behind the misbehavior won't make you angry. It'll break your heart, right? right? Another reframe could be every misbehavior 
is a call for help. How can I help this kid right now? So the first thing in my act of calming is change my goggles. See this kid as a kid in need. Then that brings me to the second step of my act of calming. So important here is that I take deep breaths. And this is why we say breathing is so important. Mm -hmm. When we take a deep breath, we inhale through our nose and we exhale through our mouth. We tell our amygdala, it's okay. I am safe right now. And when your amygdala feels safe, you have a better shot at staying in your upstairs brain with the great access of all those executive skills. Mm -hmm. Because the moment your amygdala feels like you're unsafe, boom, you're going to be shot right down to the downstairs brain. You'll be giving threats to the kid. You'll be taking things away from the kid, um, scolding the kid, and that'll just make the situation worse, right? Right. And then the third thing of our active calming is having some inner mantra, almost like a loop going through our mind. Um, I like to define the inner mantra as a power statement into something you love. So for me, my power statement is I can handle this. I can handle this. So I'm walking over to the crisis. I'm reframing this behavior. I feel sad for this kid. I'm taking my deep breath. I approach the kid. Meanwhile, in my mind, I'm not saying this out loud, but in my head, I'm saying, I can handle this. And then I go into something I love, chips and queso. (laughs) So it's, I can handle this, chips and queso. Some days it's, I can handle this. I'm going to make you proud, grandma, my alpha hawk. Mm. So whatever that, that inner mantra is for you, I love having that as a background loop for me because that's the, that's the echo of calmness in my mind. Um, so again, the inner mantra with the breathing, with the reframing of the behavior, all packages, something called active calming. Laura, do you want to talk about what your active calming would possibly look like? Yeah, this is awesome. And, and it's funny because as you were talking, I was picturing a student I had a couple years ago who was very frustrated on the on the playground. And I don't know if he knows you, Andre, but he immediately uh, walked over to the wall, sat down and in a literal yoga seated position and started breathing. And I was like, so like, I got goosebumps. I'm like, this kiddo has learned how to self-regulate. And I loved that. Um, but I, I like this whole idea of um, active calming. So um, really trying to reframe. I love how you said reframe um, feeling sad over bad. Um, I, I love that. Cause I think that, you know, even as you were saying that, that put me in a totally different mindset, feeling sad. Um, and then breathing, I've actually done this one in front of my students. You know, I just told them Mrs. Forehand has to take a couple seconds. She's going to take a couple deep breaths. It's been a little crazy. So, you know, and they just like, and I probably should have had them join in with me, but they just saw me, but it was kind of refreshing because, they didn't see me lose my cool. They just saw me take some deep breaths and okay, class, we're ready to go on. And then that third um, thing that you mentioned was having that mantra um, and connecting that with something that you love. And I love how you connected that with your alpha hawk, because that's the one thing. Um, I know a lot of people have alpha hawks that are people that are older than they are. My alpha hawks happen to be my grandchildren because Um, I want them to have teachers who absolutely love what they're doing and love them. And so I want to be the best example of that to my own students. So I love 
connecting that to then my grandchildren. Like I want to make them proud. How would I want a teacher to respond to my grandchildren if this was one of them in a state of crisis? So this act of calming is huge, a huge part. It sounds like a strong five and it sounds super powerful. I like the alpha hawk idea, but I also like the chips and queso because <laughs> I can relate to that one as well. <laughs> so I appreciate that. And it sounds to me too, like, the teacher really needs to kind of practice too. We talk yeah. about the, the students practicing, but I think the teacher needs to kind of go through these steps themselves and kind of practice in their mind how to do this. Because when that crisis hits, sometimes your mind goes blank and you don't know what to do. So that kind of leads into my next question. So if a teacher doesn't know what to say to that student, are there some examples of phrases that we could say to this child to help them de-escalate? Yeah, thank you. Um, wow, you all said some really great stuff right there. If you lose all words and lines and phrases, and all you do is go next to that kid and say this, I'm going to take some deep breaths so that I can calm myself before I help you. And if you can't even access those words, again, it's just being there. And like what you said, Laura, you told your students that I need a few moments. I'm going to take some deep breaths. You were modeling emotional regulation for them. And even though they didn't necessarily join in with you in that moment, you taught them a skill. You taught them how to make that pause button truly happen, mm. um, which helps helped you, I think, stay in your upstairs brain. Yeah. Um, and so I think that is so, so important. Now, if you are regulated as the adult, and again, a dysregulated adult cannot regulate a dysregulated kid. Mm-hmm. So it's all about maintaining that composure. Now, if you are composed and you have access as the teacher in the crisis with this kid, you want to identify what they're going through and you want to do that with empathy. So um, here's the thing. Our first instinct is going to be go to the crisis and try to stop the behavior. That's going to be what we want, right? Because we have a curriculum to teach. We are on a time crunch. I need this behavior to stop now so I can get back to fractions. When we go with the intention to stop the behavior, we can escalate the behavior. But if we go in with the intention of let me identify with this kid their experience and offer some empathy. We're going to find that not only are we maintaining our connection with that kid, we're, we're validating their experience and hopefully we're reducing the possibility that this crisis occurs in the future because they know that their teacher is on their side. Their teacher wants the best from the, from them. Um, and they're still connected all along the way. Now let's say I get to the kid one of the opening things I could say to identify their behavior would be something like this. I understand math is frustrating. Or another identification statement could be, I see this is hard for you. You're feeling sad. I'm here. You're right. This is hard. It's okay to feel mad. So those are just some example statements of how we can identify with that kid. This is a totally different mindset, right? Mm -hmm. This is a perceptual change that has to happen. So um, there's some inner work that we have to do to access these lines. Because again, when we are triggered, right, 
we're going to tell that kid, you've crossed the boundary. And when you cross the boundary, this is what happens to you, right? That's If that's the traditional response we take, then we're going to see more upset happen in the future, most likely. Um, so our best shot is identifying with empathy. And then that leads us into the second thing that we're going to do, give options to the kid. So when we give choices, this gives them a sense of power and control in a moment where they feel powerless and no control. And it takes them out of their downstairs brain for just a moment. They climb up to the top of their upstairs brain to process and decide and answer that question. And that starts, you know, one step at a time moving up to that upstairs brain. So what are some options we could give the kid? So if I go up to the kid, I say this, I understand math is frustrating. I've identified. Now I go to my option. Do you want to talk or draw about how you're feeling? Or do you want to visit the calming corner? Or I see you're feeling sad. Do you want to go to the calming corner or use the breathing board together? What's better for you? So notice that I'm posing two positive options for that kid to pick from. And either one they pick, I got to be good with as the teacher, right? And I always love ending those two choices with what's better for you. There's something about the way that lands in their ear. It really makes them feel like they're in the driver's seat in this moment and they can determine where that car goes next. What's better for you? Is it going to be um, the breathing board that we use together or is it going to be going over to that calming corner? Um, and so I've also used this quite a bit. <clears throat> Do you want to go to your desk? Do you want to return back to your desk in one minute or three minutes? What's better for you? Um so if the kid, you know, was running around the classroom and they went to the corner and they're, you know, in fetal position, I'm going over to them and I might say something like this. I'm going to identify with them. I see you're feeling upset. Do you want to return to your desk in one minute or three minutes? What's better for you? Um, that approach has been so much more successful than me going over and saying something like, um, where are you supposed to be right now? We're all doing math. You're over here. You're going to have to do your math lesson during recess. Do you want to miss your recess? What that kid needs in that moment is validation. They need empathy and they need to feel connected again. And so that's why going in with identification and going in with options is the best way that we can sort of maintain and protect that, that bond that we have with our kids. I love that word that you used, validate. Because um, that's what our students, they need to know that their emotions are uh, normal. They're, they're part of everybody's every day. So I love that, that validating part. Um, I was going to see if you could touch on, well, maybe let me ask you this question. So you touched on it a little bit. So then what needs to happen after you're done with the crisis? And, and I'm wondering too, if you can talk a little bit about not only as a, as a team, what we can do, because you touched on that a little bit, but also let's say it was math that was, that was the trigger for them. Um, how do we help that student get back to doing the very thing that sent them into a crisis in the first place? Can, uh, that's a lot there, but can you talk on both of those things? Yeah, that's a great question, Laura. 
So we know that math is the, the kid's trigger. They don't feel confident when doing math. And so the moment you say, everyone take out your math book and turn to page 14, whoa, you just gave that kid something that they're going to feel very unsuccessful with. And so right away, they start doubting their safety Mm -hmm. and that throws them into the downstairs brain. Mm -hmm. And when they're in there, we've already gone over those skills that are, that are there, right? It could be running away. I'm going to run to the corner of this classroom because this math is a threat, whether it's real or perceived, this is threatening my safety right now. And so the best approach to take with that kid is I'm going to go over, I'm going to identify. Yes, math is so hard, isn't it? Hey, do you want to try number one first or number three first? Do you want me to help you get started with number one and you try number two and I'll come back and check on you? Okay. Hey, it's okay. It's okay to mess up this math problem. When we mess up, when we make mistakes, guess what happens? We learn from those mistakes. Mm-hmm. And maybe you'll learn something new and I'll learn something new. So that would be the approach that I take with a kid that, you know, to try to get them back to what they're supposed to be doing right. um, in a productive way. Yeah. And because I know that's, that's a lot of the concern is that, well, are, are the kids going to, you know, then use this as a situation to get out of work. So I wanted to make sure that we talked about where it's not that, you know, they don't have to finish an assignment or something like that, but it may look different when they do come back, as you said. And then can you talk a little bit about um, what the class does? So I love that you said something about making a heart shape with your hand or something to that effect. Yeah. So we're talking after the crisis, right? We're talking after the teacher and the student in crisis have returned to their baseline, which hopefully is in their upstairs brain. This is the time that we talk about the behavior. We talk about the trigger. We teach replacement behaviors. We teach coping skills. And in some cases we give them consequences. Um, But giving them a consequence while the kid is in a downstairs brain can oftentimes backfire Mm. because now you've given them a reason for their upset and now they can blame you for their upset. Um, And so I love that the identification leaves them in their upset, but of course I'm guiding them out of their upset, but I'm not giving them any tool to use back on me as retaliation for why they're upset in the first place. So again, what am I doing after the crisis? We're going over the behavior. We're teaching coping skills. And if necessary, a consequence would be assigned only then. Um, And we want to make those consequences as natural as possible. Um, We want to make them fitting to the actual behavior um, that was demonstrated as best possible. So whenever a kid is out of the crisis, uh, we again want to reconnect them with their community. And that's just a way for us as a team, as a classroom family, Mm -hmm. to practice empathy rather than judgment. Um, And the more connected that I feel in my class, the more cooperative I can be in my team in the future. And so one way to do that again is just to use some kind of heart gesture, or maybe it's an air hug. um, And it's all students looking at the kid in crisis and reminding them of their value and their connection in their classroom. And that can look a variety of ways. Yeah, I really love that. 
That's powerful. So, and I would add this, you know, some kids coming back from a crisis may not want the attention of their class. Right. Mm -hmm. So I would go over to the kid in crisis and say, or after the crisis, Hey, it's great to have you back in our team. You're back in your desk. I see that you're ready to learn again. This is great. Hey, do you need your, your team right now to show you a little extra love? Yes or no. And if they say no, great. I move right on to the next instructional point. If they say, sure, are they not? Yes. Then I'll prompt the class to give them that hard gesture and that, and that nice little phrase win together. I'm glad you said that because I know I've had some students in the past that probably would not want that, that extra attention focused in on them. So coaches come up with a lot of great ideas over the summer and cheery dice was kind of coming out towards the end of the school year and through the summer. And I think you've tied in the strong five with cheery dice. Could you kind of go over that and how you did that? Yes. So I believe you did a podcast on the cheery dice. Mm -hmm. So if anyone needs some details on that, we could go back to that podcast, but I thought about just how awesome cheery dice are and the value that they give to the classroom community. And I thought, well, what if we made cheery dice regulation style, self-regulation style? So instead of sentence frames um, next to each die, uh, we put in a variety of different emotional regulation strategies. Um, And so like, let's say you roll the die and I land on a one and perhaps it says breathing board. Well, we're going to set the timer for one minute and we're going to all practice as a team using the breathing board, which is usually a diagram, a shape that helps guide our inhales and our exhales. Um, And the point of this is that we're practicing emotional regulation skills when everyone is actually regulated. So that way we're we're sort of building those neural pathways um, for when they are upset and they get dysregulated. Now they have some trail that they can hopefully find access to those regulation skills, like the breathing board, like the breathing hand, uh, the push pull dangle. That's another strategy. Um, and so again, this is just another way to practice those emotional regulation skills, um, before they're needed. Mm Mm-hmm. Perfect. That might be another podcast is explaining. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So much good information. Andre, it has been great having you back on the podcast with us. Um, I know that strong five is something not only I'm excited to use in the classroom, but I do know that my principal is interested in learning more about it. Our school counselor is interested in learning more about it. So I think that this could be something that maybe eventually we're using on the elementary side of our school. And, and I just think how powerful that would be um, for not only our students, but our teachers, um, just even as a staff, just if we're all using that, I wonder what the, I wonder what the, di- how the dialogue even in our, in our staff meetings would change if we knew um, if we, if we see the the power that strong five can have in our classrooms. Um So I'm really excited about it. Um, We do want to encourage our listeners to go to wholebrainteaching.com to sign up for those one hour Zooms that we were talking about at the beginning. And um, Andre, are you going to be doing any more this summer or is that something you're going to save for national conference um, as far as strong five Zooms? I know you've got a lot on your plate, so I'm not asking you to commit to anything here, but 
Yeah, thank you. I know it's um, a session that is worthy of being repeated yeah. <laughs> once a week. It would be really yeah. nice, right? right. Um, so next week we have our national conference. And right. in the very week after that, actually next week at the end of the national conference, Thursday is my first day back to school. <laughs> so yeah. we will certainly see if I can fit this in. Um, yeah. If not, we had the podcast. Right. And I know we'll be pumping out more resources for this. And of course, we're really good about our Facebook groups and our emails to just have that collaborative platform to share ideas and where to go next. Absolutely. Absolutely. So check out all those things that Andre just mentioned because that's where you're going to find so much great information that's coming down the pike. So, once again, thank you, Andre, for joining us. It is always a pleasure. Um, thank you to all of our listeners for liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast. We are extremely grateful for each and every one of you. Thank you so much. <laughs>